UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues, where this week we are going to be talking about duty. Now, over the last year, we've heard a lot about duty, haven't we? Our societal responsibility to be vaccinated and to wear a mask and to self-isolate and to not travel and so on and so forth. And in fairness, I suppose most people have complied with this, though whether that was out of a sense of duty towards others or out of a sense of self-preservation is perhaps over open to debate, especially in the light of behaviours that have happened since the fear of COVID has lessened and perhaps the call of duty has got in the way of convenience or personal desire. So what does it mean to have a sense of duty? Is it a relevant concept anymore? In 2014, Jeremy Paxman caused furor when he suggested that young people today were more interested in personal freedom and their iPhones than in a sense of duty. And it could be argued that we are a society more interested in individual right than corporate responsibility. But if that's the case, what does it do to a society, to a community, if people don't feel the compulsion to speak up, stand up, get the job done, rather than leave it to someone else? What if we don't feel the responsibility to run towards the problem, but rather feel comfortable running away from it and leaving it behind? And where does that fit with the Christian message of being a servant and preferring others over ourselves? Well, my guest today is someone who I think may have an opinion about this. She is Kate Forbes, MSP. And while you may not agree with her political perspective around independence for Scotland, yes, she's SNP, or indeed her economic perspective on what grows a strong economy, although she is the Cabinet Secretary for Finance and Economy in the Scottish Parliament, does that mean she's the Scottish Chancellor? Hmm, certainly the first woman to deliver the budget in Scotland, What few will argue with is that she is a woman with a strong sense of Christian duty, which has inclined her to step forward into the fray, be brutally honest at times, including about her own shortcomings, and to seek to serve. Kate, welcome to UCB. Thank you so much for having me. This idea of taking duty seriously that I allude to, and I think that seems to characterise much of your life and your career, it's not a recent affectation, this, is it? I mean, it's it's been there for a while. Has it been there all your life? It has. It's been this strand, I think, that runs through my life consistently. And, of course, anything as a child would have been given to me or grown in me by my parents. And my father in particular, but also my mother, are, I would suggest, walking personifications of uh, public duty. And I was trying to think of a, of a definition that I would use of public duty. And it does feel like doing difficult things for the sake of others. And we grew up doing difficult things for the sake of others. Certainly it was the reason why my parents uh, kept moving us across the world, uh, put us into situations that maybe felt unpleasant or difficult. Uh, They did that, always justifying it on the basis of serving God. And so it was a duty to God's call and a duty to serve others that I could see in my 
parents from a very early age. And I guess there's still a hangover from that uh, sense of duty that I now use in my own uh, career. Because you spent a fair bit of time in India, but as you say, a fair bit of time moving around your parents as missionaries. I suppose some would wonder whether it is a, a right, a fair thing to do to impose on your family your conviction about duty and about responsibility and about serving God and drag them halfway around the world into some perhaps even precarious situations. How How is your view of the idea, the concept of duty, coloured in that? Or do you agree with that? Some might wonder indeed, and I think 15-year-old me would do more than wonder and probably complain as well about how unfair it was that I was being dragged halfway across the world. And that was when I was being dragged back to Scotland from what I saw as my home in India and obliged to start a new uh, Scottish state high school uh, near Glasgow and leave behind all my friends. And, you know, again and again, at every point, every crossroads we had as a family, I always remember my dad sitting down, talking us through what the implications would be of the move and always saying that he wasn't doing it because he wanted to or necessarily because he thought it was the right, the, the best thing for us as children. He was doing it because he felt an obligation to serve others, wherever they might be, and an obligation to follow God's call. And I guess obligation is another word for duty. And so whether it was my schooling, whether it was what I did or didn't do as a teenager, my dad would always couch it in terms of duty and obligation. In other words, you've been given talents, don't waste them at school. You have a duty and an obligation to work as hard as you can. Uh, you know, you have a duty and an obligation in, with the opportunities you've been given to maximise them for the benefit of others. And that was his ideology, his perspective on life. And that was the whole justification for everything we did as a family and for all the advice he ever gave me. And I suppose it was also the philosophy that took Scottish missionaries, I mean, not just in recent times, but, but through history, took Scottish missionaries across the world. It is a, it, it would be, I suspect, encapsulated in that sort of Protestant work ethic type idea, but quite a, a stern approach to life, did you think? Yes and no, but, you know, we perhaps in 21st century Scotland or the United Kingdom have luxuries that our predecessors never had. So when we first went to India, uh, we had no access to a telephone. We had a sort of a, a computer that occasionally came on and most often was off and could send emails. But really the only way of communicating was through airmail. So age 10, I'd be writing letters to, to friends. You think of Scotland in 2021 or people that now go abroad in 2021 with WhatsApp, instantaneous messaging. But actually airmail was a luxury in 2000 compared with perhaps Scottish missionaries 200 years ago, 100 mm. years ago, who said goodbye and didn't know if they'd ever hear from their loved ones again. So in a sense, that sense that that duty has taken people across the world. 
but it's always obliged them to do difficult things. And I'm sure your listeners uh, too will have heroes perhaps amongst the missionaries of old, um, Adoniram Judson or some of the, the other um, missionaries, Hudson Taylor, uh, Jim Elliott, were all um, heroes in our, in our house. They all did difficult things, not because they wanted to or because they enjoyed it. They did difficult things because they had a sense of obligation for others. And in our house, they were, they were revered. They were treated as models, as it were, for what we should do with the, the blessings we'd been given, whether that was talents, gifts, skills, abilities, resources. The whole purpose was to use it for others, following in the footsteps of actual giants. And so that sort of sense of doing difficult things for the common good, for the good of others, where does that find its root then? Is that simply a cultural thing? Is it simply a family perspective? Or for you, is it, does it actually find a root in a biblical injunction? Absolutely. And I suppose the older I've got, the more I've realised that perhaps there are some roots in personal circumstances my dad was brought up in uh, a farm. Uh, his parents had known the unemployment years of the 20s and the 30s and hardships there. Uh, the same for, for my mother. So there may be some roots in personal family history. But over and above that, I think it finds its root in the sense of being given what you don't deserve and therefore having an obligation to give back. In other words, the notion that we are sinners with nothing to offer in one sense to our own righteousness, but that we are saved through nothing in and of ourselves, but because of God's great love for us. And Jesus did perhaps the most unpleasant thing in dying for sinners. And that sense of duty, therefore, is because I know I don't contribute anything to my own righteousness, and yet I've been given the gift of righteousness and salvation. So you jolly well better use that gift for the good of others in the way that you too have received goodness that you didn't deserve. And I suppose that comes into stark relief when you are confronted with what is, for most people, an off-putting moment and yet you still sort of move forward. You have this compulsion that actually there's a job to be done and I need to step forward. I mean, when you were confronted with the need to step forward into politics and very quickly, it seems, find yourself delivering that budget, the first woman ever to deliver a budget in the Scottish Parliament and all this weight of responsibility suddenly sitting on your, your shoulders to take on the finance portfolio. I know that you had trained to get yourself to that point, but did you ever wonder whether you should step forward or was there a compulsion to your conviction about duty that drove you forward? It's an interesting question because... I do strongly believe that that compulsion to duty, as you put it, should apply in the small things as much as it applies to the big things. If it only applies to the big things, i.e. when everybody else can see, then I don't think it's particularly authentic. But it starts to apply in the small, difficult things, helping people when it doesn't serve you to do so, when you're tired, you're cold, you're fed up. But practice in the small things, I think, equips you for the big things. So the, the example you're referring to of delivering a budget, 
without over spiritualizing it at all in that moment there was literally nobody else and that moment could have made or broken me I do think that if you if you rise too quickly in politics you're more likely to crash and burn and in the long term it doesn't serve you or your career so it's a very vulnerable moment putting yourself forward for a task that you don't know if you're ready for or equipped for but when there's nobody else to do it, I suppose your years of training in having a compulsion of duty over the small things means that you're more ready to step forward on that big thing. So was it a sense of duty that compelled you to step forward into politics in the first place? Yes, it was. I think there's no question about that. I mean, I know politicians get a hard time. They get a hard time because they're in it to line their own pockets or they're in it for the fame or they're in it because they're they're power hungry. I would never Actually, suggest such a thing, Kate. Never suggest that. <laughs> well, you're very kind, but you may be alone in that. Um, but, you know, there's easier jobs, isn't there? I mean, there's jobs where you can probably get paid better, have more power and uh, not suffer half of the grief that I put up with on social media. So there are easier things to do, but I love my community that I represent and I do have a sense of, of duty to serve them. And again, I don't, need, I don't mean to, to overdo this or exaggerate it, uh, but it is, it is trying to serve the, the, the elderly granny who is not being represented by anybody else or helping out so-and-so down the road. So I think you have to be in politics. You can't survive politics without a sense of duty. Because there's easier gigs out there without half of the grief. Was it ever a choice for you then? Or did this sense that you have a responsibility to use the gifts that you have for the greater good, to serve God, to consider others, was that, that sense of responsibility when you were presented with the the opportunity to step into politics when you were presented with the the need to step forward into the role of i mean is it fair to describe you as effectively the chancellor of the exchequer in scotland is that that a, f a fair thing to say yeah it's the closest thing yeah. that we have yeah. we've got a slightly different structure to our government but it is the so when you were presented with that need was there a sense that the die was already cast because you saw it, whatever your hand saw to do you, did, you were going to do it? In part, yes. I mean, if somebody else had stepped forward to do it, I'd have said, be my guest. The floor is yours. The mic is there. But in that moment, really, there wasn't anybody else. And the same goes for standing for election. I'm very happy to step aside for somebody else. But when you look around and you don't necessarily see others in that moment and you feel you've got something to offer then I do think it's duty that makes you step through the door. And it's certainly duty that keeps you there. So if your compulsion to step forward into these things actually comes out of the compulsion to fulfil your duty in the small things that was taught to you from a very early age, what do you think as a society we should be doing with teaching a sense of duty and societal responsibility and corporate responsibility to our children. And are we actually doing it? I think it has to be integral to a fair and well-functioning society. 
And I do fear that we have lost that sense of duty, perhaps in response to the generations that went before us, whose sense of public duty compelled them to do the toughest of things, not least um, going uh, into battle or into war. I think there's been a backlash against that sense of public duty and we have lost it. Incidentally, I do not believe it's something that can be taught as part of the school curriculum necessarily. I think it's modelled mm. by, by parents, by grandparents, yes, by teachers, but for young people, um, that sense of public duty has got to come in response to what they see being done, but also in response to the, the many, many advantages and benefits of living in 21st century uh, United Kingdom. You know, I know what we have because I've seen many that don't have it in other parts of the world. And that certainly served me well in realising that the relative wealth we enjoy in this country is not, as it were, inevitable. It has been built over many generations of hard work. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond, talking this week to Kate Forbes. Kate is an MSP, she's a member of the SNP, and she's also the Cabinet Secretary for Finance and Economy in the Scottish Parliament, and is also a very open and public Christian in that role. And I wonder if we could think a little bit about the courage of duty within the context of your faith. Because, I mean, we often talk about duty and courage with that idea of running towards the gunfire rather than away from it, taking the risk to put your head above the parapet. And although that you've done that within terms of your, your, your political career, you've also been willing to do it in terms of your faith and to be open. Because... It's not always a good idea for a politician to be really open about their faith, is it? No, I certainly don't think it serves you politically. But courage is an interesting word because I think we will all define it in different ways. I think there will be many Christians who actually think I'm a coward because in standing for politics and being elected, I have not treated my role as though I am a preacher or that my only job is to serve Christians, or even to implement a Christian worldview. Because I, I, I see myself as a representative of my constituents, of those who voted for me and those who didn't, of those who share my views and those who don't. And the courage is to battle the rights and wrongs in a world that is not black and white. In fact, it's predominantly grey. And that's where I think the courage comes in, that there's a, there's a line from a, a, a song, a, a Christian singer, Ian White, um, you know, a ship that's in the harbour is still and safe from harm, but it was not built to be there, it was built for wind and storm. And being in politics in the first place is not easy because it requires you to contend, to debate, to question. That requires, in my mind, more courage than just being a martyr on the front page of a newspaper. But at the same time, and as Tim Farron found out to his cost, I mean, he said, either I let my party down or I compromise my faith um, over the questions that were asked to him when he was leading the Lib Dems. It, it is the case that your faith is a focus of the media around you, the reports. I mean, I read one report that talked about you tiptoeing around your faith. And, and I thought that was an interesting perspective that they were bringing, but perhaps... 
kind of didn't understand just how deeply your conviction to serve in what you do with your faith runs. So is there ever a point at which you feel conflicted between your duty as a politician, your duty towards your faith? Politics is full of those debates. And I don't actually think they're unique to Christians. I don't even think they're unique to people of faith. A political party is by definition a group of people that largely agree on things but won't agree perfectly on everything. My own party is full of disagreement, for example, on how quickly independence should be delivered. It's full of a disagreement on various policies because we have a, a broad spectrum of views from the right to the left of the political spectrum. And for every politician, knowing that party politics is how we conduct our democracy, there will be tensions. And I don't think those are unique to me. What matters, though, is being able to uh, defend your own personal views and to ensure that your party allows for that diversity of views. And, and my party allows for that. We, we debate things largely in private and then we have a, you know, a united front. But there will be all number of views. So the short answer to your question is yes, but I don't think it's unique to yeah. people of faith. And then is part of the courage of that, part of the, the, that sense of duty then to ensure that A, you create a space where other people are able to express and have those, their views re respected, but also you stand up to ensure that you yourself have the space to have your views heard and your perspective treated with respect. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I hear many Christians worried and concerned for perhaps understandable reasons about, um, well, well, feeling like their own rights to practice their faith or to believe or to um, conduct themselves in a particular way. They are feel fearful that their ability to do that is being constrained. But my point would be, don't allow it to be constrained. Let's stand up and in a winsome and attractive way, be clear about who we are and about our rights to believe in a pluralistic society. You know, people, we often have this debate amongst in the church, I think, as to whether we're trying to go back to a golden age, perhaps to uh, return to Jerusalem, or whether we're living in Babylon as exiles. And I think it's closer to the latter mm. than the former, but perhaps I'm just influenced from living in a country that was predominantly uh, a Hindu uh, country um, with Sikhs and Muslims in my class. So I'm used to being the odd one out. I wonder if we could consider what I suppose is the, the idea of as you follow a sense of duty, you do it not only because you feel compelled to to do your duty, not only because you have this sense of, of courage that drives you forward, but sometimes there is a sense of compassion in this as well, isn't there? To, to take a look at those that you serve and be moved with compassion 
for them. I, I read a report about you, and, and obviously this last 18 months, two years, has been a very difficult time for an awful lot of people. But I read a report about you that you said, or that someone said about you, that during the pandemic, as the person responsible for the economic decisions that were happening in Scotland, it actually kept you awake at night, worrying about those small businesses that were struggling and that were going to go to the wall. I wonder how that relates to our conversation about duty today. It's interesting because it was the thing that first struck me when I was elected, that nobody comes to you to speak to you when everything is going well. They come to you looking for help. And as a politician, you're dealing with issues that range from uh, weighty matters concerning social justice and injustices all the way through to perhaps what some would think of as more trivial matters. But you do end up carrying the burden of people's despair and anguish, their fears, their worries, and you realise how powerless you are and how futile your actions are in helping people when they need it the most. And again, I think that's, that's shared by a number of my colleagues. But during the pandemic, that was exacerbated to uh, an ex phenomenal level where every small business, it felt, and big business, was getting in touch with me in their fears, their worries and their anxieties of whether or not they would survive. And for them, it was personal. It was they were putting their mortgages on the line. It was their savings. It was their family's future. It was their university costs for their children. And they're coming to you looking for help. And at the end of the day, as a politician, you're limited by the resources you have and the powers you have. And you can't help all of them. And even when you do intervene and help, you're helping on a blanket level. But you see their fears and their worries. And I used to sit on a Saturday, which is when I did my emails, 500 emails, trying to get through them with people from across the country writing with their personal circumstances, pleading for help in despair. And I'd read their personal stories knowing that I could not help all of them. I could not fix their personal and financial challenges. But you felt the burden of what they were pleading with you to do. And I suppose that is, in some ways, the negative side of, I mean, duty that drives us forward and makes us step forward to make a difference in the world. That's a very positive thing. That's, that's a, a great thing to have. But duty that drives us forward to make a difference and then is confronted with a situation where you realise you can't actually, that's, that's a very different side of the coin. How do you cope with that? And I think that's where courage comes in, because the courage is to keep going. Even when you feel a failure, it's the courage to keep going. And you've got to find ways of, 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 of dealing with it. You've got to find ways of, of switching off. And you know, again, I go back to my dad. <laughs> my dad threw himself into a situation of working in, in healthcare, trying to serve poor communities in India knowing that we were in a country with a population of over a billion people. I mean, it doesn't get much more overwhelming than that. And yet the courage is to keep going, knowing that even if all you can do is help one person a day, that is help they're getting that they wouldn't otherwise have got. 
if you give up now. And, and again, that's, I guess, for me, when it comes to lasting and sticking at it, is it does require courage and it requires the courage to realise that you're going to be carrying other people's burdens and you can't let that overwhelm you because the easier thing would be to just pack it in and go do something where you're not exposed to the level of anguish and, and grief. This is much worse for many, many others who are working on the front line of human need. And is it important in that to be honest about that burden and about the depth to which you feel it? Because I have another quote from you where you talk, and it was actually within the context of your faith and about not deceiving your constituents about your faith, but being straight with them about who you are, about what your background is, about the, the things that are important in your life. But you, you said this, I have a duty to represent them. And there is a, a great sense of honesty in that. It's, it's almost as though it's not just a duty to represent them, but a duty to let them see that there is a depth of compassion in this that moves you. Yes, and, and I think some listening may think that, you know, again, politicians are in it for themselves. And they think that for good reason, because many politicians have, used and abused the system and have a very poor reputation. But what matters to me is when the cameras are off, when there's no journalists, how do I behave on a one-to-one -one basis with a constituent in need? How do I respond to the emails? And it's my constituents that will ultimately see whether or not my actions back up my words in an interview like this or an interview with, with any, any journalist. and. That's where they will see through me quite quickly if I am just fake. And my hope would be, and I've just been re-elected um, most uh, recently, and I was very moved by the re-election and by my majority because it had significantly increased. And it made me feel, it gave me a great reassurance that people have seen me up close and they know that at the very least my actions back up my words, that I won't just be open with them and honest with them when the cameras are running, but I will be that way when there's no cameras and it's it's that one-to-one -one surgery context. And it is that position where you, and feel free to, to moderate or mitigate this statement, but, but from that call to love one another it is that you actually have a, a compassion for a love for an affection for even if you don't necessarily agree with all, everything they've got to say but you have a genuine commitment of christian love towards those that you are serving i love the highlands i love the communities of the highlands i feel a deep sense of of affection for the Highlands, and, and bear in mind, there are plenty in the Highlands who don't like me. <laughs> you know, I'm a politician. I am the, the least trusted species on the planet. And um, I go door to door, obviously pre-COVID, and you get everything. You get the people that'll spit in your face, they'll tear up the leaflets in front of you. So um, don't get me wrong, there are plenty that would think I'm extremely um, uh, cynical and untrustworthy because I'm just a politician. Uh, but uh, yes, what motivates you when the person is shouting in your face to keep going? 
it has to be a sense of, of, of duty. And I don't think you can have duty without an element of love. So what would your, because part of, of talking today isn't just to explore your sense of duty, it's to see where we can grow that sense of Christian duty, of Christian love within our society. What would your suggestion be to people in order to find that heart to love people who will tear up all the, the creative effort you've put into making that statement about, about what you believe and why you believe it's important to write and so on, tear it up in your face and have a complete disregard for you. How do we find love that then drives duty where people can be so opposed to us? How do we make it happen across society? Well, I, you'll hopefully hear from my words, I am an absolute passionate believer in this, in the compulsion of duty, that at the end of the day, if your actions are based on selfishness or concern for yourself and takes no account of others, then we will see our society degenerating. The, the best societies, the most effective societies are those that are based on a love for your neighbour and on a work ethic which strives to serve. And we in the church should have that and should have the motivation for that because we are called to love as Jesus loved and there's few people, few beings that loved as sacrificially as he ever did. So my, from my perspective, I think we are given much and therefore much will be expected from us. We have been given time, resources, abilities, gifts, and we should use that to serve God and to serve others. And I would certainly appeal for more people to consider how they can use their gifts in the public square. It's right and proper that people use it within their own Christian communities. It's much harder to use it in the public square. But I think that if we do want to see our society uh, fairer, happier, more prosperous, then we also have a duty to use that in, in, in the public square. Oh, but Kate, I'm a Christian. They don't want me. They don't want me to to, to step forward as a councillor. They don't want me to step forward as a, as a prospective MP or MSP. They don't want me to lift up my voice because all they'll do is slap me down. They they they'll just they'll just they'll just reject everything that I'm about. Well, I can't step forward, Kate. Well, you can. And right now, what the country needs is. But beacons of light. We have come through 18 months of isolation, loneliness, mental health is, in, is, is acute. There is a great need for people who have a hope that they can share in the darkness and who have the compass of morality to make decisions with. And that's what we need. We need hope and principles and I'm sure you have it do you need to make sure that your actions are winsome and kind yes don't let that dilute the message but make sure it's the message that offends and not how you share that message so there are many things for us to learn but don't let your fears and worries 
about that stop you from sharing your hope and sharing the principles which our society desperately needs. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? That recognition that when we accept the call of God in our lives, we can bring a message of hope and of truth and of love and of compassion, and we have a duty to live it out and to show it to people, not only in our words, but in our actions and our consistency and our tolerance and our compassion and our ability to bring hope where people are in despair and bring light and guidance where they are lost. Duty. Maybe if our society today has lost sight of it, there's a renewed responsibility on those of us who have an example of loving duty, sacrificing all for us to show how it can transform the living that is all around us. Kate Forbes, MSP, my guest today for this week's Life Issues. Thank you for your company, Kate. Thank you for having me. Don't forget this is available as a podcast wherever you listen to yours or indeed on the UCB Player app. And why not join me, Paul Hammond, for Life Issues next week. Ta-da! <laughs>